Well, if you would be turning in your copies of Scripture with me to Romans chapter 8, we're in, as I said, verses 26 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. And hear this as it really is, God's very own word to us, his beloved people. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as Cameron showed us last week, in verses 18 through 25 of Romans 8, Paul outlines how the Holy Spirit empowers us to suffer meaningfully because of the joy of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. He empowers us to suffer meaningfully. And those are words I think that we cannot hear too often because none of us wants to suffer. And one of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit to us is that he empowers us, despite that natural inhibition, to suffer meaningfully because we keep our eyes and our minds fixed on the joy of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And now, in verses 26 through 30, good purposes for us in Christ Jesus. I think that's the key truth for us this morning. What I hope we will walk away with from these verses, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live by faith, in all that our good Father has done and will bring to completion for us in Christ. And I think that raises a question for us straight away that's worth pondering. What sustains you when you become especially aware of your weaknesses? Now, if you belong to Jesus, count on it. He will make you aware of your weaknesses. Jesus never intends that we outrun our weaknesses. It's no project of his that we should grow less and less aware of our weakness. It's rather his project that his power would be magnified in our weaknesses. All that he is for us, all of his strength and his mercy and his grace is magnified in our weakness. So the project of the Christian life is never that you get to a point where you never feel your weakness. Never. In fact, weak people are the only people Jesus has any desire to help. I wonder if we believe that sometimes. Weak people are the only people Jesus has any desire to help. He came, he said, like a physician. Not for the healthy, not for the strong, but for the sick. That is, the weak. And we need to get this real clear and real straight in our minds because we live in the middle of a cultural and political and and just otherwise moment that is thick with the idea that forceful and explicit displays of strength is the crying need of the hour. And all of us, I think, are tempted at times to become quite convinced that the big problems in life are down to the fact that other people are bad, either because they're malicious or or, or maybe just dumb, And, and to the extent that we share any blame, it's because we've been apathetic 
and weak about confronting them. And in such an environment, to come preaching weakness is almost guaranteed to earn the church scorn from every quarter. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're thinking about. If you come preaching weakness and, and come preaching the gospel that says Jesus' project is not to make you never feel your weakness, but rather to magnify his strength through your weakness, you will earn scorn. But, but God will not allow us to stay with the idea that we are strong. Oh, we may have that idea but he's going to disabuse us of it sooner or later, which is why we do so well, I think, to teach our little children to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Folks, that's theology. You could spend an entire lifetime plumbing the depths of what that really means and all that that really means for you and never get to the bottom of what it means. Weak people are the only people Jesus helps. Weak people are the only people who have the access to the riches and the comfort and the joy of Romans 8, 26 through 30. So let's see it for ourselves. Starting in verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, because we don't know what to pray for, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit was sent to be our comforter, to lead us into the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he said, did not leave us as orphans in the world. The Spirit is the guarantee that we really do belong to him. However we may feel on a particular Monday morning or Tuesday morning throughout the rest of the week, the Spirit is the guarantee that despite your changing moods, you actually belong to Jesus, and everything that is now true of him is true of you. Therefore, everything the Spirit does is perfectly consonant with what Jesus does. All that Jesus came to give us, the Spirit now applies to us. All the people that Jesus aims to help are all the people the Spirit was sent to help. Jesus came for none but weak people. The Spirit helps none but weak people. Therefore, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And as far as our text is concerned, this is illustrated in no higher way than in the fact that the Holy Spirit is symbolic of our weakness just generally considered. Because we don't know what to pray for like we ought to pray for. Think about this. What was God up to in the world yesterday? I mean, particularly. Can any of us say? When I lived in Chicago, I used to sometimes go down to the city center to, to Union Station, and there was a neat little balcony that kind of overlooked most of the train tracks and the platforms where people would get on and off. And I would just stand there and just people watch, and just watch the thousands of people that would get on and off the trains and going about businesses, and just ponder all the thousands of people in the span of like 30 minutes, you could watch thousands of them. All these people have lives that are just as vivid and complex as mine. And, and this goes on whether I'm aware of it, every single day. And not just in Chicago, but in all the great cities of the world, all of us are going about business, our, our business. All of us have fears and anxieties and hopes and joys and dreams. What is God up to in all the particular circumstances of those lives? Can I say? I don't know. And, and that's repeated across thousands of generations. What about the events of last year? The, the, the hurly-burly of, of 2020 to 2021 to 2022. What was God up to in all of that? I mean, particularly. 
Glorifying the name of the, the Son of Jesus Christ? Yes, amen, and, and yes. Building up his church? Yes. But partic- in all the, w- the particular ways that that works out, what was God up to? Do we know? Think about the challenges of your own relationships, the challenge that it is to see with eyes that are perfectly free of selfishness and commodification. Do, do we even see the needs of our own souls with eyes that are perfectly keeping their gaze upon Jesus and are calling to live as his beloved sons and daughters? Do we know what to pray for? God has said that it is his will and his will alone that will stand. He says, I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So despite what we may see in the world about us, despite the big headlines, these are things that are just trifling shadows. They're going to pass. They're like grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's God's will that stands forever. And yet, do we know what God is up to in all the particular circumstances of our lives? Think about even our journey as a church family to get to a permanent facility. Could we really, we praise God for all the ways in which he's been so gracious and merciful to us, but could we really say we know what he's up to in all the strange twists and turns that journey has taken us on? We don't know. So unless God helps me to pray, all my words will be as ephemeral as the vain thoughts that are here today and gone tomorrow. So, oh, that we would know what it is to depend upon the Lord like this. We are weak, but the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And by the way, this is why we say so often at Christ Community Church that the antithesis to faith is not doubt, it's pride. You see, in our pride, we flip the script of the, I know what to pray for. My difficulty is that I just don't do it. You know, I've got to set aside time to do it, or I'm just kind of lazy about it. But, I, you know, I know what to pray for. I, I see clearly what I need to ask God for, and maybe the solution isn't far behind. We also flip the script of what Paul is going to say in verse 28. I'm not so sure that all things work together for good. And, and so what Paul is doing, what the Spirit is doing, is reflipping that script that we so often get backwards. We think we know what to pray. And by the way, I think that's one of the challenges to a prayerful life. Have you ever considered that maybe one of the reasons you struggle to pray is because you think you already know what to pray for? And if you think you already know what to pray for, chances are you think you already know what the solution is. And if you think you know what the solution is, why would you pray? And we really struggle because we forget that all things work together for good for those who love God and are calling to his purpose. We pretend that we don't know that. And we struggle to pray for that reason too. So to the objection, why pray if God already knows what I need is the answer of our text because you don't. And yet God is not content to leave you outside of his plans and purposes. He, right, he wants you right there in the thick of the action. He wants you with him. And in prayer, he draws you into conversation with himself and uses, it, uses you as an instrument for plans and purposes that are a billion times higher and more noble and grander that you could, than you could ever dream in a million years, which is why ordinary prayer, the simple words and common requests, the confession of sin that we make and the unburdening of our souls before our Heavenly Father, the cries for help, the giving of thanks, none of that is ever an ordinary thing. Oh, that we would see what a privilege prayer is. You and I are weak. We feel it. We carry it with us always. And in our weakness, is dis- and our weakness is displayed in this, that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes with us with groanings that are too deep for words.
Paul goes on in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think we ought to see one thing clearly in this verse. God searches hearts. God knows the ins and outs of your personality better than you ever could. He knows perfectly well all that you've ever done. He sees perfectly well all that you've ever desired. He sees perfectly well all that you could become. He knows your longings and your desires, your hurts, your frustrations, your traumas, your fears. He knows every joy and gladness that you've ever known. He loves all the little things that make you tick, that make you you. He knows the relationships that have formed you, the ones that have lasted, the ones that have soured, the ones responsible for joy and the ones responsible for pain. He knows you. And he says to you, you have been born by me from before your birth. Carried from the womb, even to old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. There are lots of ways I think we could illustrate the the power of this for for us. And this is not even the best way, but for some reason I just couldn't get it out of my mind this weekend. I don't know exactly why, but as an illustration I heard from John Stott, on a tape from John Stott. And uh, he was talking about a woman in his congregation who was a little bit older, on her way to heaven, and she couldn't see very well without her glasses, her spectacles, her specs, as she called them. And so he was visiting her, and she, she was telling him uh, that, that she liked to go out, you know, and, and go about the town and do her business, but she, because she couldn't see very well without her glasses, she had difficulty crossing the road in traffic. She said usually it wasn't a big problem because people were kind and helped her, but she preferred to cross by the traffic light. Because she said, whenever she saw the words in green, cross now, I walk over courageously. And then her eyes lit up, and she said, you know, when I am dying, Jesus will come to me, and he will say, cross now, and I will not be afraid. Oh, that we would know the God who searches hearts like that down to that level of specificity, down to that level of your ins and outs and the ordinary things that you are facing, that you would know that you have a heavenly Father who searches your hearts and comes to comfort you. The great lesson that John Stott drew from that is Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and he's coming to fetch us. And so we need to know God searches hearts. He searches our hearts. He knows us. He's not distant. He searches our hearts. What does he find when he searches yours? What does he find? That's the greatest question I think you could ever ask yourself. What does God find when he searches my heart? What does our text say? It says he finds another mind, the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit who is perfectly conversant with God because he is God. The Spirit whose desire and will is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and so bring glory to God in all the work that is working in your life, interceding for you according to God's will perfectly. The spirit whose heart burns with all the passion for God and for the glory of God and for the things of God that you and I in our flesh find at times to be so weak. He prompts within you unexpressed groanings to which God in all the strength of his character and holiness cannot help but to say yes and amen. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? Remember what he said to be the result of your abiding in him? He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
And maybe like me, you've really struggled with that because you thought, man, I've done a lot of praying in my time. I don't know that I could say that whenever I prayed, I've asked whatever I wish and it, it happened. But here the Spirit is at work in our lives to bring this promise to pass. If you and I could pray with a holy constancy, with the kind of omniscient confidence that God himself has about the future, if we could be certain that every time we opened our mouths in prayer to the Lord, that we were praying only what would bring him glory and our surest joy in him, that is what the Spirit is praying for us. And he's taking all the mumbled, garbled, anxious thoughts that we sometimes have, he's turning those into groans. That's how they register in our hearts, how we know that he's actually at work doing this for us. And they, they, they rise up to heaven so that God hears only ever what is perfectly in accordance with his will, only ever what is the best for his people, only ever what is in keeping with his loving promises established from all of eternity to bring you into his glory and presence forever without fear and guilt and shame. That is what the Spirit is doing. He's bringing this promise to you, for, to you to pass. Jesus Christ is our intercessor in the courtroom of heaven. Paul's going to remind us of this in verse 34. And he is there to ask the Father for every good thing for his people. And the Spirit is the intercessor, as John Murray says, and I love this, in the theater of our own hearts, shaping our prayers according to the will of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What's the result of this? And not just something. We know the greatest fact of human experience, namely this. If you love God, all things work together for good. Not one detail of your life will turn out for evil or even the slightest disappointment. Everything leads to joy. Again, I think we have to go back to this because so often we flip the script. We pretend that we know things for certain that we don't know, and it just hampers our prayer life endlessly. We pretend that we don't know this. All things work together for good to those who are called, who love God and are called according to his purpose. Nothing works out for evil. Now, there is not a single facet of your life and experience that God is not expertly working, crafting, to work towards eternal good and joy in him. We do not know how he is doing it. We do not see always how it can be. There are aspects of ourselves and our stories that we would rather, if we were honest, have not ever come to be. And it strikes us sometimes as perfectly mysterious how they could ever possibly turn out for our good. And to this confusion, the Bible is never flippant. It simply presents us with the weighty truth that the only one, the only one in the whole universe who has the right to say it will work out for your good has in fact said it. And he is doing it because he has called you according to his purpose. It's a weighty truth. If you and I were to, to go around to each other and just to say on the basis of our own authority, our own experience, well, I'm sure it'll turn out fine, that can be such a flippant thing. And so often I think we take this weighty truth and we treat it like that, overlooking people's deep pain and, and the way that lands on them and, and, and treating this as just a, a quick Band-Aid. But that's, this is not what that is. The only one in the universe who actually has the right to say it because he can actually do it has in fact said it. And this is what we need to latch on to. This is a truth that we can actually know for certain. In all the confusion of our lives, we know this. The one who has the right to turn everything into our good is doing it because he has called you according to his purpose. And for why? In verse 29, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This verse sets out the first of of the five discrete actions Paul lists as the ground of our knowledge that all things work together for our good. And first, he says, God foreknew you. This is not mere knowledge ahead of time of the things that will come to be independent of God's working or action. No, it is God setting his regard upon you in the ages of eternity past before you or I or anyone else ever existed. Before all of that came to be, God set his affection on you, you specifically. Not on the basis of anything that you had ever done because you hadn't existed up to that point, but because of his affection for you. As he told Israel in Deuteronomy 7, I love you because I love you. In the Bible, the sense of knowing carries not just this sort of intellectual cognition, it carries a sense of deep affection, of holding that person in the highest of regard. And that is what Paul is saying here. God foreknew you. He set his affection upon you. And second, God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So, God set a destiny for you that cannot be excelled by any other conceivable set of circumstances. It is utterly impossible for you to be predestined to a higher calling. Central to God's character is his unwavering commitment to glorify his name through the salvation procured for his people through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, we as Christians believe, is central to existence itself. So there could be nothing, nothing at all that could that could be a higher destiny for you than to be included in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And that is just what God has predestined you to do, to be conformed to the image of his son, to share in his existence. So if you set your gaze upon Jesus Christ, you will never, you will never, you will never lack for a reason to be filled with the highest sense of purpose, the highest sense of purpose that it is possible to conceive. Paul goes on in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, you did not assume this privilege of your own initiative. No, God called you to it. Haven't you ever, and I'm sure you have, experienced a friendship with someone that you really admired and deeply loved? And didn't it fill you with a sense of recognition, a sense of being included, of being on the in, whenever they took the initiative to reach out to you? I mean, in these days of cell phones and, you know, you kind of see who's calling you ahead of time. It's not as special, but you, 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 get, a, you get a call from somebody, you, you pick up the phone and it was your best friend. And you thought, wow, they took the time to reach out. To, today it's kind of maybe replaced by memes. If somebody sends you a meme, you know they really like you. <laughs> You're really on the in, you know. But in a sense, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but this is sort of what Paul is saying. You didn't take this initiative to be included in this grand design, this great relationship, this highest destiny of your own initiative. God called you to it. God called you to it. He wants you to be there. He called you. And fourth, because he called you, he justified you. He washed you clean of your sin and shame by the blood of the cross. He set you free from death. He raised you to new life in him. He didn't just call you so that you could stay in your sin and shame, wallowing forever as sort of a second-class person in the universe. No, he justified you. He made you perfectly righteous, just as if you'd never sinned. He set you free from all the things that weigh you down with sin and shame. And fifth, most astonishing of all, God glorified you. Now, God glorified you. 
You and I, we, we haven't experienced this yet, but it is so certain, it is so certain that Paul describes it in the past tense. As C.S. Lewis observed, and I, I love thinking about this, if you and I were able to just get a glimpse of the kind of person that every one of us in this room who puts their faith in Lord Jesus Christ is going to become, if we are able to just get a glimpse of what that person would look like in eternity, we'd be desperately tempted to fall down and worship them. And yet that is the destiny of all of us. All of us are headed to a weight of glory that is waiting its final fulfillment, but is certainly going to come. And so thinking about all these things, I think Richard Longenecker is helpful here. He says, basic to all Christian thought and all Christian living are, one, an understanding of how the present sufferings of Christians and the present situation of God's creation relate to the destined glory of believers in Jesus. Two, a vital connection regarding the hope given by God to all believers in Jesus. Three, a lively realization of the Spirit's help and intercession before God on behalf of those who are God's people. And four, the assurance of Christians that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now listen, everything else in the thought and life of a Christian is dependent upon the consciousness and experience of these primary truths. There are lots of sort of Christian ways of talking about discipleship, lots of biblical ways of talking about discipleship. When we, when we use that word, keeping the gospel central, we can very easily lose the script and the meaning because it can become very easily, I think, a cliche. But here, I think, is what, in the best sense of that term, we ought to mean, keeping these primary truths in our consciousness and experience. What is the way in which we, as Christ Community Church, are going to navigate our own weaknesses? Is it by outrunning them, believing that, well, the, the, the ticket here is to, to overcome my weaknesses, to never think about them, or get to a point where I never have to be confronted with them, to be strong, to be mighty, to let people know what's what? Is that how we're going to grow in grace and love? No, that's not what this text teaches us. Is our difficulty in our prayer lives down to the fact that we just don't really have enough cognition about what we should be praying for? So if we just keep enough lists, if we set enough timers on our phone, if we really just become you know, really disciplined about it, then we'll get to it. Is that what our text teaches us? No. Is our problem in, in worship, the, the, the struggle that we sometimes feel to come into Sunday morning and really feel like, I'm worshiping the living God here, the one who's happy to see me. The one who sets all things together in the course of my life for the good of his people, and he wants me to be here and to lift up praise to him. And sometimes it just feels like, man, the weight of the week has just got me down. Is the solution then to that just to, I don't know, listen to more Christian music on the way over or have a nice conversation or, 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 or some technique? It's not what our text teaches us. No, it's to keep our eyes fixed about what we actually know is true, about all that God has called us to in Christ Jesus. He foreknew you. He foreknew you. He set his regard upon you even before you existed, not on the basis of who you were going to become, all the cool jokes that you could tell or the hobbies that you had or the great person that you'd be, all the good works that you would do. He loved you because he loves you. He predestined you to a higher calling than you could ever possibly conceive, to share in the inheritance of his own beloved son, the one who has been with him from eternity. He called you to it. He didn't wait for you to pick up the initiative to recognize how great and majestic and worthy he is. He called you. He picked up the phone and he said, I want you there right with me. And he justified you. He made you clean. He made you righteous. He made you able to stand with him and never be able to be ashamed. To be able to turn all the darts of the enemy 
who nabs you with, with the fears and doubts, all the mistakes that you've made, all the clean connections you think you can make between your present discomfort and the sins that are back there in the past. And he said, that's no longer true of you. All things are working for your good. And he glorified you. He glorified you. One day you are going to shine as bright as the sun in perfect purity and in peace. That is certainly your destiny if you believe in Jesus Christ. So what is the way in which we're going to grow as Christians in this year and in the years ahead? How are we going to confront all the changing circumstances of life? How are we going to be people who are confident is displayed in our weakness? It's by keeping these truths in our consciousness, fixed in our minds, never letting them go, trusting that he is at work through the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. So a final question of application, and then we're done. What are some particular circumstances the Holy Spirit has used in your life to strengthen your faith in God's good purpose for, purposes for you in Christ? How has he done it? What are some particular ways in which you've seen him at work to strengthen you in your faith in God's good purposes for you in Christ? And how did he do it? How did, what did the Spirit do to empower you to walk through those circumstances with faith in God? This may be a difficult question to, to, to ponder, I've noticed it for many of us. I feel it too often. Even that simple question, how has God been good to you this week? We ask it as a staff each Wednesday morning. Sometimes that is, it's just tough. It shouldn't be. We serve, we serve a God who causes paradise to rise in the sky every single morning. This would be the easiest question to answer, but sometimes my mind is just so distracted. The weight of sin or just what I got going on that week is so, it's hard to see. So this could be a hard question to, to, to answer too. But we need to ask it of ourselves. We need to ask the Spirit to help us in our weakness. Lord, help us to see how are you at work to remind me of all the good promises that have been given to me in Christ Jesus, to bring them, to bring them true in my life. So it's worth asking ourselves. And take the week, if you need to, to ask it. So what does Romans 8, 26 through 30 teach us? Simply this. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live by faith in all that our good Father has done and will bring to completion for us in Christ. Thank the Lord that we serve a God who serves us so particularly and so well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you aware even now, Lord, of how your spirit is at work through our prayer this morning to take our weakness and not to leave us there, Lord, but to build us up in all that you've given us in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, help us as your beloved people to be people who run to you in prayer, Lord, who recognize what a deep privilege it is, not because we know what to pray for, not because we see things clearly, not because we always know what the solution is and we simply need an extra bit of heavenly firepower to get it done. No, none of these things, Lord, but because we don't know what to pray for. We're frequently tossed to and fro by the winds of changing circumstances. We feel our own weaknesses. We carry it with us. And yet, Lord, you have invited us to the banquet feast of your heavenly blessings. And you give us your spirit who prompts within us groaning, sometimes that are too deep for words. We don't even know how to articulate what we most deeply need, and yet you hear these, and you are ready and willing to respond to them. Oh, Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy that is extended to us in such a deep and profound way. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the way he is at work even now to mold and to shape us into all the great truths that are true of us in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep this before our minds continually. Help us not to wander from this truth. Lord, we know how often we forget. 
You know, Lord, how often it is a struggle in our flesh to remember what is most true about us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that through prayer, through the Holy Spirit, through the remembrance that you foreknew us, that you predestined us, that you called us, that you justified us, that you glorified us, that we be people with unshakable joy and confidence. Despite all the changing circumstances, but despite all the things that we may suffer, that we belong to you and that you love us. So may this be our conscious experience this day and forevermore. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.